First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Our theme for the month is pluralism. Two weeks ago, I mentioned the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity to help us think about how we might move beyond our tendency to minimize cultural difference and better appreciate how deep culture goes and open ourselves to learning how to better adapt to different cultural contexts. Last week in the Zoom service, we did some history as a subversive activity, looking at how white landowners in the 17th century invented the American tradition of racism and how that legacy affects and infects everything. Understanding these matters helps us live out and live into our value pluralism. It's a value that Unitarian Universalists are considering codifying in our association's bylaws with language that says, we celebrate that we are all sacred beings, diverse in culture, experience, and theology. We covenant to learn from one another in our free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We embrace our differences and commonalities with love, curiosity, and respect. Today we turn to pluralism of sexual orientations and gender identities. In our free and responsible search for truth and meaning, we always confront two huge mysteries ourselves, and other people. Whatever your sexual orientation or gender identity, just because you are or have that orientation and that identity doesn't mean that you understand it. We remain mysteries to ourselves. And other people are also mysteries to us. We cannot clear up these mysteries, but we can live into them, manage them, we can acquire some helpful conceptual tools. So I propose today to lead you on a journey, a tour through a landscape of ideas and concepts, queer theory. Our starting point is that last sentence from our description of pluralism. We embrace our differences and commonalities with love, curiosity, and respect. That's our starting point. And it's also our ending point. What we will find is that we are led back to where we started, our covenant to embrace our differences and commonalities with love, curiosity, and respect. As T.S. Eliot said, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And that's what this exploration will be. And we will arrive where we started only we might know the place a bit better. So concept number one, ignore it or try to. According to this concept, the thing to do with sexuality that may be different from your own is ignore it. What consenting people do in private is irrelevant, has nothing to do with our shared life. Don't ask, don't tell. Since sexual orientation has nothing to do with character, reliability, competence, trustworthiness, has nothing to do with whether a person has inherent worth and dignity, it should just be ignored. 
Let's dispense with labels like lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and treat all people as just people. In race relations, this attitude was called being or trying to be colorblind. Similarly, we might be or try to be sexual orientation blind or gender identity blind. But then we get to concept number two, honoring identity. The problem with concept number one is that people want to be seen and honored, acknowledged and respected for all of who they are. During the four years in the early 1990s that I was a professor of philosophy at Fisk University, a school with a predominantly African-American student body, I saw every day how important African-American identity was to my students. Certainly, they wanted to be respected, and they wanted to be respected as African-Americans, as what they were. They didn't want white people pretending to be unable to see color. We like to be recognized for who we are. We don't want our identity to be socially erased. We want to be proud of who we are, not told that a key part of our experience is meaningless. Similarly, many LGBTQ folk want to be recognized and accepted for all of who they are. We are entitled to equal concern and respect, but we don't have to pretend that we're all the same. We want to be recognized for who we are. Colorblindness or gender blindness or sexual orientation blindness tries with varying degrees of earnestness to pretend that we are all the same. And this pretense has the effect of projecting the majority's norms. That's how color or gender or sexual orientation blindness plays out. Pretending that there's no difference between black and white is basically tantamount to pretending that we're all white. Color blindness allows the norms and assumptions of white culture to hold unchallenged sway. In the same way, sexual orientation blindness amounts to projecting heteronormativity. Now we start getting into areas that are going to be, for many of us, a bit more challenging. You see, while many in the LGBT community worked hard for recognition of same-sex marriage, not all LGBTQ folk have unalloyed enthusiasm for the spread of acceptance of same-sex marriage. Marriage itself is heteronormative, they point out. Marriage takes the heterosexual model as the norm. You have one partner, you live together, run a household together for life for at least starting out with the intention that it be for life. But maybe that model should be challenged rather than pursued. Some queer theorists criticized the traditional family as a deeply problematic institution that ought to be challenged and called into question. And so we come to concept number three. Identity and everything are shifting cultural constructs. Some queer theorists also challenge the very idea of identity. So concept number one was let's ignore it. And concept number two was let's recognize identity as a way to respect who a person is. And now we come to concept number three that identity may be a problematic notion. Starting with gender, let's acknowledge that the clear black and white categories, male and female, aren't really so clear. 
Some people are born intersex, where the biological sex cannot be clearly classified as either male or female. And the practice of forcibly resolving the ambiguity, forcing the child into one box or the other, sometimes using surgery to help resolve the ambiguity on one side or the other, has been harmful and traumatic. Let us learn to accept ambiguity. In fact, Suggest some queer theorists, more gender ambiguity might be a good thing, might be good for us all. We might all dress and style ourselves in ways designed to make it harder instead of easier for others to categorize our gender at a glance. We might all dress that way. I remember years ago, if I saw someone like at a mall and I couldn't immediately tell if it was a woman or a man, I wanted to know and I would keep stealing glances to see if I could ascertain which one it was. I have learned to be more comfortable with not needing to know. Sexuality is culturally constructed, and culture is constantly shifting. Cultural studies professor Nikki Sullivan writes in A Critical Introduction to Queer Theory, Sexuality is not natural, but rather is discursively constructed. Moreover, sexuality is constructed, construed, experienced, and understood in culturally and historically specific ways. Thus, we could say that there can be no true or correct account of heterosexuality or homosexuality or bisexuality. Contemporary views of particular relationships and practices are not necessarily any more enlightened or any less symptomatic of the times than those held by previous generations. Queer theorist David Halperin describes three very different cultures in which sexual contact between older men and boys has been acceptable. The ancient Greeks, some Native American tribes, and New Guinea tribesmen. He asks, is this the same sexuality? Such contact has some superficial similarities, including acceptability in all three cultures, yet the social context and the meanings of that contact are so varied, and the cultural understanding of what was going on was so diverse, that we really can't call it the same sexuality. The brilliant French philosopher and social theorist Michel Foucault pioneered new ways to think about and understand ourselves but we're going to need a break before we start getting all Foucault up in here. So let's have our interlude. Michel Foucault is a founding figure for a number of kinds of study, including queer theory. His three-volume History of Sexuality revealed how sexuality has been culturally constructed in Western civilization. In Britain and much of Europe, prior to the 1880s, Foucault points out sodomy meant any form of sexuality that did not have procreation as its aim. So using birth control counted as sodomy, and penalties against sodomy were severe. Analysis of the time reveals that the laws were directed against acts, not against a particular type of person. 
There was no understanding of sexual orientation as an identity any more than we have an understanding of adulterer or, say, person who parks in a no-parking zone as an identity. It wasn't until the later 1800s that particular acts came to be seen as expressions of an individual psyche or as evidence of inclinations of a certain type of subject. Certain forms of sexuality moved from being seen as horrible acts which anyone might succumb to, to being seen as the expression of a particular type of person. As Sigmund Freud expressed and magnified the new way of thinking, Sex was at the root of everything about us, and thus the homosexual became a personage, a life form, characterized as a certain type of degenerate whose entire character, everything about him, was corrupted by his sexuality. Such a viewpoint hardly seems to us like progress, yet as traumatic and disastrous as that cultural phase was for many, it paved the way for later attitudes. Once we saw sexual orientation as an identity, subject to treatment rather than to criminal or moral judgment, the ground was laid for the next step. Only then could culture move to seeing that identity is not harming anyone else. And from there to it's not harming themselves either. And then to being tolerated, to being accepted, to being welcomed, to being celebrated as a worthy and beautiful part of the diverse spectrum of human expression. And that's a huge change, a huge series of changes, all within the last 130 years or so. The field of queer theory then, examining the vastly different ways that sexuality manifests and is understood in different cultures and times, raises for us the possibility that our cultural changes in the last 130 years might not be a matter of finally seeing the truth that has been there all along. Rather, there might be a matter of the contingent accidental evolution of our concepts, evolving in ways outside of anyone's explicit control or intention, but not dictated by something called objective reality either. This metaphor of evolution is apt Because in literal evolution, evolution of species, the objective environment establishes conditions in which species will fail, will never appear or will quickly die out. And yet the objective environment does not guide or direct evolution toward one true species. Rather, the objective environment is one in which increasingly diverse species emerge and find ways to be successful. And by analogy, then, we might say the reality of our biology establishes conditions in which some concepts of sexuality will never appear or quickly die out, yet biological reality does not guide or direct our understanding toward any one truth. Rather, the array of possible ways of thinking about sexuality, while constrained by the facts of biology, remains as infinite as the array of possible species. If you are having a hard time wrapping your mind around how it can be constrained and yet still infinite, look, suppose I tell you to pick a number, and then I say it has to be a prime number. Your choice is now constrained. The number has to be a whole number, a positive prime integer, and prime. But there's an infinite number of prime numbers. So constrained and yet still infinite. 
Biology gives us some constraints, but the possibilities for cultural constructions of what to do with those constraints remain infinite. So, let's review. First level, forget about labels and categories, just love people. Second level, uh, it's not so simple. People want to be recognized and respected for who they are. We have an identity as a man or a woman or as non-binary. We have an identity as a person of color or not. We have an identity as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or straight. And my identity in these areas is not relevant to my rights, not relevant to whether or not I may be oppressed or discriminated against, not relevant to my claim to equal concern and respect. But it is relevant to my sense of who I am. And I want my society to recognize and honor and respect who I am. A don't-ask-don't-tell policy requires me to hide who I am. Actually, it doesn't require straight white men like me to hide who we are because under white normativity, heteronormativity, my particular identity happens to be the one that's assumed rather than hidden, which is why recognizing and respecting alternative identities matters. And then comes this third level. The notion of identity itself is challenged. Not only are the categories fuzzy and unreliable with people falling along continua rather than into one neat box or another, but the continua themselves are contingent social constructs subject to deconstruction and reconstruction into something different. Sexuality is plastic, and the ways we make meaning of it are even more plastic. Which brings us to... Making peace with ambiguity. It's confusing. It's changing. We can't really get a handle on the right way to think about it. Because any way to think about it is just one more temporary product of culture and language and power. No matter how enlightened our attitudes may be, no matter how up we are on LGBTQ literature, the latest books on gender and transgender, biology, psychology, and experience, no matter how conversant we are in heteronormative critique, it'll all be different in 50 years, if not sooner. And your currently enlightened attitude will seem to people then benighted. So queer theory helps us let go of our assumptions and not replace them with new ones. Queer theory itself is not so much a theory as an understanding that no theory can be the one right theory. Queer theory helps us resist the temptation to resolve ambiguity. For in that space of ambiguity, we come back to where we started, simply Standing on the side of love, siding with love. Tell me what's important to you. It might be your sexual identity, your gender identity, your racial identity, or it might not be. Tell or don't tell, it's up to you. And I might ask or not ask, though, keeping up amid the constantly shifting cultural landscape with what questions are inappropriate is part of the ongoing task. If I do ask, you can answer or not answer or say it's not important to you or tell me that you really just don't know. This is how we embrace our differences and commonalities with love, curiosity, and respect. It requires the courage to stand in ambiguity and shine a warm, embracing light. There may once have been good reasons 
for wanting to resolve the ambiguities of sex and sexuality. It may have even felt unbearable not to know, and to know instantly who was and who was not automatically in the category of potential mates for reproduction. With a little practice, though, we can be comfortable not knowing, not needing to know. Our journey through queer theory has led us back to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And what we know about this place is just how indefinite and undefined everything is. Embracing our differences and commonalities with love, curiosity, and respect requires neither a rejection of nor an insistence on any notion of identity. What it does require is courage. The courage to take each ambiguous moment as it is. The courage to love each ambiguous, ambiguous person, however he or she or Z presents. Amen.